Matthew chapter 22 is our text, verses 1 through 14. If you'd open your Bibles there and navigate on your iOS or Android device. If there's anybody in here that has an Android device that doesn't have the app downloaded by the end of service, that's it. (laughs) Because all we've heard is... Gene might say he loves you, but I don't, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I need more help. Matthew 22, verses 1 through 14 is our text. The topic, Jesus tells a parable in which he compares the earthly kingdom God promised the Jews to a wedding banquet. The title of our message, My Big Foretold Jewish Wedding. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for uh, this timely text. It's uh, Uh, filled kind of with history, Lord, the history of your people, Israel. We're watching their history unfold in the news every day as you are miraculously keeping them in the land that you promised them. And so I pray, Lord, that we lock into this, understand how timely it is, but also glean from it personal, wonderful insights about your love for us as your uh, people, the church today. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. You're familiar with wedding crashers, but did you know there are wedding bashers? That's a, a term that bridal websites and publications are using more frequently. They use it to describe someone who spends the day finding fault with the wedding, just, you know, uh, comparing to other weddings they've recently been to and things like that. Then there are the weddings that get more seriously bashed. I read an article describing a wedding reception that turned into a brawl after the best man pushed into the buffet line to help himself to a piece of chicken. Must have been from Chick-fil-A. The bride's sister was left with a broken nose and two black eyes after she was allegedly punched unconscious by her own uncle. I've been to weddings like that, (laughs) mostly in my family. But anyway, bashers and crashers figure prominently in the parable of the wedding feast Jesus told. Goes without saying, you don't want to be identified with either of them. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, you should have no resemblance to a wedding basher. And number two, you should have no reason to be a wedding crasher. First of all, in verses one through seven, uh, let's talk about these wedding bashers. Now, we're living at a time when anti-Jewish sentiment is high and it's growing. On August 6th, a web article stated the following, a heavily Jewish section of Paris was looted and attacked as crowds shouted, gas the Jews. Multiple synagogues and Jewish centers in Paris and elsewhere in France were firebombed. In Berlin, protesters shouted, Jew, cowardly pig, come out and fight. In Frankfurt, they carried signs such as the Jews are beasts and the star of David is the star of the devil. In the Hague, Netherlands, crowds chanted death to all Jews. In England, particularly London, there have been over 100 anti-Semitic incidents. In Miami, protesters chanted Jews remember Kaibar. The army of Muhammad is returning, commemorating an Islamic war victory. In Boston, pro-Israel supporters had to be rescued from an angry crowd that shouted, Jews back to Birkenau and drop dead. A pro-Israel student was attacked by a woman insisting that Jerusalem would be cleansed of Jews, while another crowd shouted that Jews better learn how to swim. This is just two weeks ago. This isn't World War II. And there are dozens of other examples. Worse than all those, however, 
is the fact that the professing church has in large part abandoned Israel. One researcher claims, today there are approximately 100 million American church members who have very little to no understanding of Bible prophecy. These church members are from replacement theology churches that don't teach Bible prophecy and who look at prophetic scriptures as allegorical and not literal. Consequently, they do not understand the importance of Israel to the God of Israel or God's redemptive plan for Israel and the nations. You don't realize it, but we are in a very, very small and shrinking minority. What is replacement theology? Replacement theology essentially teaches that the church has replaced Israel in God's plan. Adherents of replacement theology believe the Jews are no longer God's chosen people and God does not have specific future plans for the nation of Israel. Replacement theology is a form of wedding bashing. God is not through with his chosen nation, and that should be obvious even to a casual observer. The church did not replace Israel in God's plan, but is something beautiful in addition to his plan for Israel. If God can renege on even one of his promises to his covenant people, then what hope do we have he would keep them to us? We have every hope because our God is faithful and cannot lie. Now, the parable of the wedding feast we're going to look at today is very simple. It's very straightforward. It's an explanation of God's dealings with the nation of Israel. Jesus is speaking it to the Jews during the last week on earth before his crucifixion to let them know what history holds for them. The king in the parable is God. The son is his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The wedding banquet is the literal kingdom on the earth promised to the Jews throughout their scriptures. The initially invited guests are the Jews, the nation of Israel. The messengers sent to them are the prophets and the first preachers of the gospel. And so in verse one, and Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables and said, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. God made certain unconditional covenants, promises, with the Jews. The Abrahamic covenant promised Israel a land, a posterity, and a ruler, and spiritual blessings. What's called the Palestinian covenant promised Israel a restoration to the land and occupation of the land. And the Davidic covenant promised Israel a king from David's line who would rule forever, giving the nation rest from all their enemies. Now, by the way, the Bible never uses the term Palestinian covenant, and Moses certainly never would have called the land Palestine. And so it's better to refer to that covenant from Deuteronomy chapter 30 as simply the land covenant. It is where God promised Israel their land. Now, many Old Testament passages describe a literal kingdom on earth. That's when the lion is going to lie down with the lamb to quote one of the most famous representations of it. We learn in the revelation of Jesus Christ that it's going to last a thousand years, and because that is millianum in Latin, we call it the millennium or the millennial kingdom, not the millennial falcon, the millennial kingdom. See how you get, I'm I'm trying to work in as much pop culture as I can. Now, the wedding motif represents God's attitude about the kingdom he promised to establish for Israel. It's a literal political kingdom on the earth with Jesus ruling and reigning from Jerusalem, but he wanted to give you a a feel for what he thinks about that kingdom, and so he envisioned it as a festive time as a wedding feast where every one of his chosen people would rush to attend and enjoy. 
the thousand years would be one long wedding feast. A meager earthly equivalent would be something like the recent royal wedding of Prince William to Kate Middleton. It was watched by millions of people in over 180 countries around the world. It was a spectacle, a phenomenon. And if you were invited, you planned months in advance to be there. But it's like an afternoon at Chuck E. Cheese compared to what God has in store for his people. I like Chuck E. Cheese, but you get the idea. Uh, Verse 3, he sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. Now, notice the servants were sent out to call those who were invited to the wedding. They were already invited by virtue of being God's specially chosen people. The time they should have been preparing for had arrived. There had been a previous announcement, what today we call a save the date announcement. We can even get specific about the date. Daniel was praying back in the 6th century B.C. The Lord dispatched the angel Gabriel to give Daniel a remarkable prophecy that describes the history of Israel. We call it the prophecy of the 70 weeks. We don't have time to go into it right now, but it contains a mathematical component by which the Jews could have calculated the exact date on their calendar that their Messiah would enter Jerusalem as king offering their kingdom. They did not save the date, but God would not be deterred. Verse 4, again, he sent out other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fatted cattle are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. This second wave of other servants might refer to the first 10 or so years after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus into heaven. The apostles and those converted by their preaching continued to invite mostly Jews to the kingdom. It's always a revelation to some people that all of the, well, first of all, that Jesus was a Jew. I, I hope you realize that. Jesus was a Jew. All of his disciples were Jews. And the gospel was only preached to Jews for about the first 10 years. There were some exceptions, but for the most part, it was going out to the nation of Israel. But verse 5, they made light of it and went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his business, and the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. Stephen is a good example of this. The first martyr of the church, he was stoned to death for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Jews. As far as we know, all the original apostles, with the possible exception of John, died martyrs' deaths, horrible martyrs' deaths, and John was severely persecuted even if he might not have died a natural death. There's some discussion about whether John died a natural death or a martyr's death, but either way, he was severely persecuted. The Jews continued stiff-necked in their refusal, and at the end of the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul said this, therefore let it be known to you, speaking to the nation of Israel, that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will hear it. The promised kingdom was on hold. It was postponed. Jesus would establish it upon his return to earth at his second coming. And so in verse 7, when the king heard about it, he was furious, and he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. Would to God this were just a figure of speech or an allegory. It was not. We typically say that Titus and the Roman legions destroyed Jerusalem and its temple in 70 AD. That was the year they breached the walls, true. The entire campaign started in 66 AD, and it lasted until 73 AD. Many years 
of siege and destruction in which uh, one estimate says a million and a half people were killed. It was, to put it simply, awful. Accounts of it are for mature audience rated V for extreme violence. Contrary to popular sentiment, that was not the end of God's care and concern for Israel. He promised to restore them to their land, which he has. Through the coming great tribulation, he will turn the hearts of his people back to him. They will receive Jesus at his second coming, and then he will establish their kingdom just as he promised. And so that's what this parable is teaching. What can we glean from this parable? Well, quite a lot, actually. Here's some things. In verse 5, we read, but they made light of it and went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his business. The Jews knew, or they could have known, the exact date that their king would roll into town. Instead, they made light of it. They thought little about it. They were, we would say, apathetic. Dare we say that making light of prophecy can lead to spiritual apathy? Of course it does. The apostle Peter thought that prophecy was the thing that kept you razor sharp as a believer. The whole last chapter of his letter, second letter, encourages you to look for and thereby hasten the coming of the Lord. We have very little excuse for ever growing spiritually apathetic. For one thing, we don't know the date the Lord is coming for us because his coming is imminent. It could happen at any moment. There's no time for apathy if you're looking for the Lord to return at any moment. It's far more motivating. Uh, you know, if, if I could calculate that the Lord was coming, uh, you know, right after family camp, I, I could arrange certain things in a certain, but when I think, well, no, the Lord could come before I get my hamburger this afternoon, then I have a much more, a, a much greater sense of urgency. Imminency ought to keep us sober and vigilant. If I'm taking the Christian life lightly, putting off my walk with the Lord, I'm betting he won't return while I'm being spiritually lazy or while I'm in sin. It's a bad bet, not just because I might get caught off guard at his coming for the church, but because it begins to affect my walk in general and I think less and less about personal holiness. You know, uh, you've heard sermons or you know, it's common to talk about how in times past when people used to argue about whether it was all right for a Christian to go to the theater. They'd say you wouldn't want Jesus to come back while you were in the theater. And, and you know, there's a sense that I understand that. You don't want to be caught doing something that you quote unquote shouldn't be doing. But, but it's far more sinister than that is that you just begin to be lax in your entire Christian life. It's not that you're going to get caught doing something. It's that you're going to get caught doing nothing because you're, you're not really thinking about the coming of the Lord. We also read in verse 5, they went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his business. Those aren't bad things. Nothing wrong with farms and businesses. But we might do well to consider how we might insert the Lord in them, how we might acknowledge his ways through them. Is it just Chick-fil-A and In-N-Out and Hobby Lobby that are called to let the world know there is something more, someone greater? Those are three of the businesses that, that we all know. There are many more that you know, put Bible verses or references on their product or uh, make a stand for Sunday worship, those kinds of things. It should be an example to all of us who have any opportunity or ability to do something like that. How can we insert the Lord in our daily business? It's also one of those what does it profit you comparisons. If your farm or your business is keeping you from serving the Lord, what does it profit you? And that's a problem. 
What is his way for your farm, your business, your family, for your future? Develop a spiritual strategy to be more of a witness everywhere you find yourself. Now, verses 8 through 14, we talk about the wedding crasher. A third wave of invitations is sent out. Verse 8, he said to his servants, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. Historically, this would describe all the period after the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple until the kingdom is established. So it would actually include the age in which we live and the great tribulation. During this time, the invitation is going out all over the earth to everyone, everywhere. Both bad and good are invited. What does that mean? Well, that's a summary of things Jesus has said before. Commentator Adam Clark points out that Matthew had already recorded several such opposites. Clark said, the church is the threshing floor where the wheat and the chaff are often mingled. That's from Matthew 3. It is the field where the tares and the grain grow together, Matthew 13. It is the net which collects all kinds of fish, both good and bad, again from Matthew 13. Then later in Matthew 25, Jesus would use yet another contrast to describe folks who survived the great tribulation. He will say there are sheep and there are goats. And so there's going to be these, this division, this separation. Bad and good are shorthand for those we would call lost and saved. At the end of the age, when Jesus returns to establish the kingdom, only those who are saved will enter into that kingdom. The parable describes this in terms of whether or not the person is wearing the wedding garment provided him by the king. Verse 11, when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. Now, apparently, he had to wear a special wedding robe given to each guest by the host. Whether this was the custom at every Jewish wedding or just for royal weddings, I cannot tell. It's really not so strange a custom. There are still restaurants where if you're a guy, you can't eat without wearing a jacket. Many of them have jackets on hand. And if you don't have a jacket on, you have to borrow a jacket and sit there wearing a jacket. Uh, some of them would just turn you away and say, you're a slob. Uh, none of those restaurants would go over here in the valley. We're not really too familiar with dressing up. I'd be ready for a funeral if I'd just tuck in my T-shirt. <laughs> not to attend it, but to officiate at it. I mean, that's kind of how we think. Pam always says when I go out to a funeral, she says, honey, I don't think you're dressed up enough. And I said, oh, yeah, I am, because I've got a tie on, and I can bet you $100,000 that none of the pallbearers will have anything other than a collar on their shirt. Uh, so to be dressed up around here, you have clean jeans and a collared shirt of any kind. It could be a polo shirt, it could be a button-down shirt, it could be a cowboy shirt, doesn't matter, but a collared shirt and clean jeans uh, and you are good to go at the <laughs> finest, finest establishments here. And I'm, I'm, hey, I'm okay with that. I'm not making fun of that. I don't mind dressing up, uh, but why bother? Anyway, <laughs> verse 12. So he said to them, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. First, let's talk about the garment. 
It's among my favorite illustrations of the salvation you receive by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. To me, this is the most easily understood picture of what it means to get saved in all the word of God. The prophet Isaiah said of us, we all are like an unclean thing and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. Now, he was describing what we would look like, spiritually speaking, if we were to stand before God. If you were invited to stand before God, if all your good deeds, all your righteousnesses could be spun somehow into a beautiful garment, your very, very best would be like filthy rags in comparison to the glory of heaven. Who do you consider to be the most holy, saintly person to ever live? Most of the time, the average person will say, Mother Teresa. Her entire lifetime of very best good deeds are filthy rags when seen against the holiness of heaven. Let me give you a more complete picture of the garments. It's found in Zechariah chapter 3. I'll just read it to you. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest. This isn't Joshua who led them into the land, but another Joshua. Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. And he answered and spoke to those who stood before him saying, take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, see, I have removed your iniquity from you and I will clothe you with rich robes. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and they put the clothes on him and the angel of the Lord stood by you understand that Joshua was the high priest. He was dressed on earth as he served in the temple in the most glorious, expensive garments ever sewn. He was decked out with gold and gems galore. No one could outdress the fully decked out high priest of Israel. Standing before the Lord on the earth, he looked magnificent. He was the best-dressed person on earth, and through the rituals and ceremonies required of him, he was the most prepared person on earth to stand before God. He was the only one allowed to enter the holy of holies. And so, I mean, you have to understand, this is it. Dressed, you know, to the nines, I think they call it. He's ritualed out, ceremonially clean, in the holy of holies. This is the dude. In heaven, God's looking upon him and he says, all of that is like filthy rags in my holy presence. It is not sufficient. You cannot stay in heaven on that basis. So God exchanged Joshua's garments for those of his own providing. The angel of the Lord who stood nearby was none other than Jesus Christ who would provide those garments for Joshua and for everyone who believes by his death upon the cross. And so Satan is accusing Joshua, wanting to claim him for himself, seeing that he's filthy before the Lord, and the Lord says, well, my son is standing here. He doesn't, we, we can read into this because we have the completed Bible. My son is here. He's going to take Joshua's place. He's going to come and die in Joshua's place. And his perfect righteousness can be given to Joshua and anyone else who believes while he takes upon them the filthiness 
of their sin. It's a tremendous picture of what Jesus Christ has done for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 summarizes it saying, he made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Our sin, like a filthy garment, was put on Jesus. His righteousness, like a pure robe, is put on us, and now we can go to the wedding. This exchange takes place when God's grace frees your will to enable you to receive his son as your savior. He exchanges righteousness for sin. He declares you righteous on the basis of what Jesus did on the cross. The garment is not earned, it is given. There is therefore no reason to remain in your sin. You're without excuse. When the king says, where is your garment? Because he has provided it for you. The king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away, verse 13. Cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is where you might start singing, mama told me not to come. (laughs) Now that is a joke, but it's black humor to defend the horror Eternal torment is real. Hell is real. I wish it weren't, but it is. One author wrote, Jesus chose strong, terrifying language when he spoke of hell. I believe he chose to speak this way because he loves us and wanted to warn us. So let's not miss the point. He spoke of hell as a horrifying place characterized by suffering, fire, darkness, and lamentation. I believe his intention was to stir a fear in us that would cause us to take hell seriously and avoid it at all costs. Verse 14, many are called, but few are chosen. This saying of the Lord's has been used to try to limit the scope of his call to salvation when in fact it does not. The terms many and few divide the whole of humanity into two unequal parts. The many and the few add up to everyone. If you're not buying that, the parable itself teaches us that the many and the few add up to everyone because everyone who could be found anywhere, both good and bad, is invited. The whole point of this parable is that it is an all-inclusive invitation. Anywhere you see anybody, they are invited to this wedding feast. And when you get into the parable and say, well, but many, you know, few, there's only a select group of people that God had in mind, that is not true. Jesus said of himself that if he be lifted up on the cross, he would draw all men to himself. He didn't mean all men would be saved, but that the cross would exert an influence of grace upon every hard human heart to free the will in order to be enabled to receive or reject him. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you don't have to wonder if you're one of the chosen. Did God choose me before the foundation of the world? Because the Holy Spirit is here with God's preceding grace opening your heart, freeing your will to make a choice to receive Christ. Jesus is the savior of all men, especially those who believe. His sacrifice as our substitute on the cross is sufficient to save everyone, but only becomes effective in those who receive him. In that sense, you are chosen by God, having received his son by grace through faith. And so if you're not saved this morning, it may may be that there's one or two or half a dozen people here that aren't saved, or maybe you're severely backslidden. What is your reason? The king is here this morning saying, where is your garment? If If you're not a believer, why don't you put on this garment so that you can stand before God now and forever? You're without excuse. Maybe you're a Christian that's slid away from the Lord. You're backsliding. Maybe no one even knows it. Maybe it's all in your heart or maybe it's very evident. 
Maybe your garment is, you would look at it and think, well, I've stained my garment. The Lord can cleanse that. He can wash it as white as snow, and you can walk with him. The guest in our parable offered no reason. He realized there was no reason, and he realized too late that it was too late. It's not too late, not today, not for you. Now, for those of us who are walking with the Lord, let's ask him to show us how his ways and our ways either coincide or are out of sync, out of step, so that we can be those who live preparing for the trumpet that will call us home in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. Let's pray together.